0: You didn't hear me the first time, (laughs) Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25 is where we're going to be. So we pick up in verse 18. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then the Lord God said, it is not good And we're not ashamed. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. And as always, we want to ask that you would now do in our hearts everything you purpose to do, delight to do, through the preaching of your son, Jesus Christ how desperately we always need him and more of him. So give us more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How well do we understand that uh, the Bible is a cohesive whole? That it's a single story? One big picture. Uh, how well do we understand that all Scripture, both the New Testament and the Old Testament, is Christian Scripture? That all of it, from Genesis to Revelation, finds its completion in Jesus Christ? Right? Is that how we read the Bible? Because it should be. I know it's Advent, uh, but the Holy Spirit... Uh, has left us Christ-revealing Easter eggs all over the pages of Scripture, and our text this morning is no exception to that. Uh, Our passage is getting at a marriage. It details a marriage that, beyond a surface-level reading, uh, reveals a marriage. And uh, as this is done at the start of the Bible, and reappears consistently throughout the Bible... Shows up again at the end of the Bible. I think it's fair to say, with many others, that the Bible is most deeply a love story. Uh, It's about a man and his bride and his great love for her. What I want us to hear this morning, here at the beginning, is that creation exists to the praise of the glory of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Talk about your, your meta-narrative. We don't like meta-narratives today, but you read the Bible, that's what you're going to get, one big way to understand our world, okay, and what's going on in the world. So, let's come to this meta-narrative, beginning with a prelude to creation's crowning moment. You'll notice, if you look at our text, that it begins with the word then which is a little strange, it's a little unusual, alludes to the fact that we're picking up in the middle of something, something has happened already, then this happened, our text. And for our purposes, that then is signifying the continuation of two related things. Uh, The most obvious context is creation, and more directly, the goodness of creation. If you're less familiar with the biblical account of creation, it begins with the eternal triune God. He never came into existence. He always was. Uh, For reasons we'll consider, he then creates everything out of nothing. By his word and by his spirit came all the glories of the universe and of this solar system and of this planet in particular. Nothing that exists, exists independently of him, but entirely upon him including the sun and the moon and the sea and the sky and the land and all the plants and all the animals of the sea and the sky and the land. And it was all good. As you read through those chapters, you're going to hear it echoed, an echo of goodness. It was good, 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 all the way through. It was as good as good can be, but it wasn't as good as very good could be. God was not done creating, as we come to our text. In the progression of creation, it seems there was a, a cherry on top, there was a best for last, there was an addition that gave completion to creation. Creation really did have a crowning moment. But maybe not exactly where you think I've led you. In Genesis chapter 1, that moment is simply the vocational creation of humanity in the image of God. So, in the last verse of the Bible's first chapter, humanity is created, the goodness of God's creation then ascends from good to very good. It's all very good now. So, people, and two people at first, are what put the very into the already pristine goodness of the created order. Now, is that how we think of people today? It's hard, given our condition now, isn't it? But it's still true that in a world that loves to hate humanity, human beings are, above all else, carriers of the divine likeness. They're image bearers of God, however ruined that's been by sin. That said, as we come into Genesis chapter 2 then, Moses wants to just magnify this view. This view of this vocational creation of humanity in the image of God. He tells us how our first parents came about and how they came together and why. They weren't created at the same time. And they weren't created in the same way. From the dust of the earth, Adam was created first. Probably a good time to remind us that God does nothing without the absolute best design and purpose in mind. For the flourishing of heaven on earth, Adam is made the head of all. And in light of him being made head of all, just ahead of the then in our text, and before Eve ever exists, his basic vocation is laid out for him by God. Which is the second and nearer contextual point in our passage. Our then, verse 18, is building not only upon the goodness of divine creation, but also upon the goodness of divine vocation. We might say it's building upon the inestimable importance of being faithful to God. When God drops his son, Adam, off at work, it is to work and to keep a garden. It's to cultivate and then expand its resources while keeping out anything that would have ruined it like a serpent. We wouldn't necessarily know it from these verses, but as the Bible goes along, we're led to understand that Eden was essentially an outpost of heaven on earth, that Adam was commissioned to develop until God's glory enveloped the entire universe. Eden was this kind of temple sanctuary, a meeting place between God and man. and Adam was the prophet and the priest and the king created by God to man it in obedience to God. By two things then, the grace of countless gifts, you can eat of all the fruit of the trees of the garden, right? The grace of countless gifts, and the dread of justice for not counting any of that, enough. God means to mercifully constrain Adam to a joyful obedience to his word. Before Eve is a thing, Adam is made to understand that his success and happiness as a human being depends entirely upon him trusting God, which will involve him in bringing his heart into continual submission to God's Word. And at this time, when all is right in the world, What a joy that will be for him to do. (laughs) No struggle at all. Which tells us what it should be for us as well, to obey the word of God. However, when God reveals the penalty for sin in verse 17, eat of the fruit of this tree, you will surely die. When he reveals that, we're alerted to the possibility, dare we say future certainty, of a challenger to God's word, and so a friend to Adam's fall, an enemy of Adam, an enemy of God, which brings us to our text. Technically, in this more specific retelling of the creation of man, that's what Genesis 2 is, we're only halfway to very good at this point because... The wall is still untouched by sin, there is something that in lieu of Adam's creation and vocation is, verse 18, you see it there, not good. You see it? There's something that's not good. Adam was by himself. He was alone. And that's saying something because at this time in Eden, Adam had the company of God. Apparently God just walked around in the cool of the day in the garden. That's not to say that God was insufficient for Adam. Adam appears quite content with the status quo. That's because Adam does not know himself as well as God knows him. To be what God made him to be, he needed to realize that he, Adam, was insufficient for it. That he was incomplete. That he needed not just godly human help, but godly, apparently, godly female human companionship, and help. It was good for him to have a co-equal, complementary woman. Still further, it was good for Adam to have a godly wife. So now, this is what the rest of our text explores. What we have in these verses is creation's transition from good to very good. Which means that creation's crowning moment is not just the creation of man, male and female. It's the divine institution of marriage. It's the one flesh union between a man and his wife, listen now, as a remedial mystery to the future certainty of our fall. There's something redemptive in it we're going to see. Beneath the surface, we're going to find Jesus. So, let's come back then to verse 18. Again, God says it's not good for Adam to be alone. And so because God is kind, and because He really is about our holistic happiness, He reveals His determination to create a helper fit for Him. And we should feel the suspense in that helper being as yet undefined. She won't be for long, but as yet she's undefined, this helper. But God then, in, in, in waiting here, and in, in bringing all these creatures in front of Adam, is wanting Adam to have a keen and experiential, a knowledgeable sense of this helper's one-of-a-kind beauty and value. In short, God wants Adam to be smitten with this woman that he's going to create. So that he holds an estimation of her that towers over all the wonders of God's created order. All right? So who needs the sun in the sky if they've been given a godly wife? That's what's going on here. God wants Adam to get this, to understand it, to feel it. So, verse 19, God marches all the marvels of the Eden Zoo in their Genesis Pre-sin originals before Adam. Can you imagine the beauties? Probably not. Because we live in a creation that's in bondage to decay. That's beside the point. What's not beside the point is that while God's almost certainly meaning to encourage Adam's excitement in the process, he's also establishing Adam's sovereignty. In the Bible, naming, in verses 19 and 20, that's what he's doing here, naming is about reigning. Again, we have little sense of this now. Uh, Forget uh, what a a lion might do to us if given a chance, right? Even dogs bite, worms devastate our gardens, bees sting us. There's a reason that anytime anything buzzing comes around, any of my children, they're like scurrying, They've learned to fear little bitty things like bees, but it was not always so. And it will not always be so. Originally, everything was placed at and under Adam's feet and his care. He had a real dominion wielded beautifully for the gladness of every living thing in the glory of God. And so everything that was, was amenable to God's will as it was expressed through the man, Adam. Now, we don't know how long this process took, right? Marching all these animals in front of Adam so that he would name them. But what we do know is is that at the end of it, verse 20, there was not found a helper fit for him. So a dog may be a man's best friend, but it's not this. Neither it nor any other created thing is an equal being of soulful companionship and complementary ability in the life and work here allotted by God to Adam. Not in all the world was there one for Adam like her, like she will be. So, the note sounded, is at first a lonely one? For Adam, there was not a helper found. But it's not a hopeless one. Can we just see here also, just for a second, that God knows what he's doing in bringing us to such places? That he'll sometimes grant us to feel completely and totally alone. There's not a helper found for him. He'll make us feel that so that we learn to rely on him alone. And that in relying on him alone, we're never going to be cheated. Not only uh, is God going to give us something really, really good, he's going to give us what's best. He's going to give us what is fitful for us, for the things he's called us to do, okay? Well, so verse 21, still in our prelude to creation's crowning moment, God puts Adam to sleep, how we are in his hands, right? (laughs) We only little know, but while Adam slept, God opens up Adam's side, and he takes out one of Adam's ribs, and then he patches Adam back up, and then from the rib... God makes a woman. I had half a mind uh, this week to have a point in the sermon called uh, The Rib That Became a Wife. Because that's what happens in the text. Adam's wife is a member of his body. Store that away. Okay? We're coming to Jesus. But first see that awaking from surgery Adam is brought face to face with the first woman, his wife, the helper fit for him, and that it's God who like a a father walking his daughter down the aisle to give her away to this man's delight and to his care, it's God who brings this woman to Adam. So the glory of this moment cannot be overstated. There's nothing in all creation at this point in history that was as beautiful as this. And moving now to the poetry of creation's crowning moment, all of that is not in the least lost on Adam. (laughs) How could it be? What we have just now in his first glimpse of her peculiar glory is an affection that leads to the first words in the Bible that are not strictly God's or the mere narrative of Moses. Adam himself speaks. And his first recorded words are an attempt, I think, at poetry. It's a couplet or something like that. He's seen all the splendor contained in the world. We can't let that get away from us. All the splendor contained in the world, but nothing has he seen as splendid as her. And so he sees her and he's like, you know, suddenly I feel a song coming on. I've just got to sing. It's very enchanted. If you've seen Enchanted, okay. Yeah, he's like, this at last. Verse 23, is literally bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now ladies, I don't know what that does for you, but I'm thinking it's kind of a classic, right? It's in the Bible. And that it has, in the space of a teacup, a vast ocean of meaning. Adam's tribute to his wife communicates at least, at least, her co-equal human value. Still, with his headship for her welfare, as well as her beauty in being his complement in life and in ministry. To which, she is not a mere animal. She is nothing less than the female version of Adam. Bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh. She also uniquely bears the image of God. So that there is, between she and Adam, an equality of being and of value. He understands her to be the most outstanding creature in the cosmos, and not just besides himself. Again, we've been watching Enchanted a lot because, you know, Disenchanted has come out. We've been trying to catch up on the 2007 version. Right? And so the prince in Enchanted, at one point, like his little helper guy, he's like, sire, do you like yourself? And the guy's like, what's not to like? Okay, that's not Adam. That's not Adam here he understands her to be the most outstanding creature in the cosmos, not beside himself, not besides himself, but alongside himself. And that's important because, you see, he goes on to name her also. Her creation has not scuttlebutted his headship. Adam is still the first among equals. But contrary to what is so everywhere in our world today, Adam's sovereignty is going to be used in service of his wife's all-around beauty under God. Okay? So just think back to our time in the Song of Songs. If you were here over the summer, think of the lily and the apple tree Okay, that's this. Divine love will guide his headship for her heart's good. After God, after God, Eve holds the heart and will of this king of kings. If you don't mind some allegory here, there probably is a reason that she's made from Adam's rib. As opposed to like his toe bone or something. Okay? I know, gross. Probably has something to do with the fact that she's so near his heart, and also the how supportive she is of it. You take a rib out, you have an exposed section here, right? Doesn't say that he ever made a rib back for Adam. So, she has his heart, and he will need her help. You see, while they are equal in being, they are yet unequal in function. He is her head, she is his body, and the helper fit for him. In being and doing what God commissioned Adam to do, their success, not his, their success demanded complementarity. It demanded trust in the wisdom of God and a love for one another resolved to elevate the other according to that wisdom. It demanded a faith, we might say, that God knew best how to make them truly happy together. So, it's worth the asking, is that how we have ordered things in our minds on this matter? Is that how we've ordered our marriages? Is that how we've ordered our mentalities, the way that we think about gender and whatnot? Is that how we have ordered our ministries? By faith and by the word of God and for the glory of God. Because that will be a return when we do that, as it were, to the relational and vocational joys that we find in Eden. And are supposed to find again through the redemption that Christ offers. So much for Adam's poetry, we have to move now to Moses' commentary on it, or the principle in creation's crowning moment. In viewing it, Moses sees quite a lot. He first sees in this first marriage the divine institution of marriage. It becomes grounds, you see, for the following exhortation that he gives in verse 24. If you look there, Moses says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So there is a leaving and there is a cleaving here. There's a departure from what is known to create something that's altogether new. Altogether new. And to be sure... That is what marital union is supposed to do. It is what it does, it produces a new creation. You go to Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, and you'll see this. Or you just go to Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 6. In marriage, a new covenant is cut in which God makes the two, takes the two, and makes them really one. He makes them a spiritual unit, a spiritual unity melted together by the unquenchable flame of the Lord, the Song of Songs. That's why, under most circumstances, something like divorce, particularly amongst Christians, is so burdening. It exposes a vast array of errors in thinking about God and marriage. What it is, what he's made in it, and what he means to do and preach by it. Namely, the gospel. Jesus certainly cannot be clearer about it than his remarks in Matthew 19.6. He's talking about, commenting on, Genesis 2.24. And what he says is, they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together. You hear that? God has joined together. Let not man separate. When your marriage is struggling believe that God's binding holds a promise. His ability to hold together what he's already joined together is stronger, is stronger than our ability to rip it apart. And so we're exhorted, let not man separate what God has joined together. Or to flip it positively, husbands, hold fast. Hold fast to your wife. The rule that Moses gives here is a conjugal intentionality of mission that results in a passionate permanency of union. A conjugal intentionality of mission that results in a passionate permanency of union. Leave conjugal intentionality of mission. Leave and cleave, resulting in a passionate permanency of union. Okay? Leave and cleave. And yes, that cleaving then is a matter of greatest intimacy. Uh, Adam and Eve, the man and his wife, verse 25 it says, they knew each other. They were both naked, completely open, deeply vulnerable, entirely exposed, and because there was no sin in them yet, they were not ashamed. As husband and wife, unstained by sin, they thoroughly enjoyed everything that their marital union involved. If you want more detail, again, I'll send you to the Song of Songs. They had the perfect marriage. Now, that's going to change. (laughs) But before it does, Moses has given us a principle that's going to prove prophetic of the gospel. In the best sense of it, there's more here than what's on the surface. A love story has taken center stage, but it may not be exactly the love story we think it is. It's not the love story between Adam and Eve. It's the love story between Christ and his bride. It's that He's come into the world to take a bride to Himself out of this fallen existence. This marriage and every marriage and Christian marriages especially have a prophetic, a preaching element to them. They are not ends in themselves. They function testimonially to the redeeming love of God that we have come to know in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, if you will, let's go to Ephesians 5 and the prophecy in creation's crowning moment. Paul's going to call it a mystery profound. He's addressing Christian husbands and wives and how they're obliged to live together for the sake of the gospel. But then it's more than that, isn't it? It's more than that. He's rooting their marriages in the soils of the gospel, There is, in fact, now another marriage that's been inaugurated and has become both the model and the anchor for all the rest. Why will a wife submit to her husband as her husband loves her to death? Why will she do that? Because that's how the church responds to Jesus. She trusts His love but why will a husband then love his wife like that why will he die if only she be made happy and holy in christ why will he nourish and cherish her as his own body as the most outstanding creature in the cosmos because that's how jesus has loved the church just rooted in the gospel And it preaches the gospel. And so if you look at chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 from our passage. And then he just straight tells us, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Adam and to Eve. No. No. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, dear ones, before sin entered the world, redemption is prefigured at Adam and Eve's wedding. As if he knows where things are going, God depicts the love story for which he created the world. Creation exists to be a platform for the gospel. That is worldview shaping. That should change the way you look at everything. And if I may add still more for the molding, Genesis 2.24 apparently gets at what other passages imply, that even before the foundation of the world, Christ was ever the Lamb of God who would be slain for us. It is on purpose, I think, that God separates Eve from Adam, rib from his body, only to join them together again as spouses. There's separation and then reconciliation, union. Once sin enters the world, that's going to be our condition in Adam, separated from God. And that is something that Jesus is the only one who can fix it. The gospel, you see, is truly a wonder of love. Adam took a bride from God's hand in splendor. At that time, literally everything about Eve would have been lovely and enticing. Think about that. She would have been the easiest thing in the world, literally in the world, to love. Because nothing that makes us all a trial to love had been established in the world. But now it has. And further, though they learned to sin against each other, doubtless they never felt the sting of sin as God does. When a child sins against another child, the feelings will be hurt until the next snack break, and then they're buddies again. But let a child sin against a parent, good parents, one who's known them and loved them and sacrificed for them And provided for them long before the child even knew that they were a thing. And the sting is different. So our sins sting God distinctly. And yet, and yet, the and yet of the gospel of grace. The bridegroom in the Bible. The one coming after so wretched a bride is God the Son. If you'd like some rather gory descriptions of our bridal condition prior to the glory of Christ's grace in us and towards us, just go read Hosea. Go read Ezekiel 16. Or go read any of the Gospels as they approach the cross of Christ. The point to be felt is that Christ comes to us none the nonetheless. This is an Advent text. The Son of God left His heavenly Father. He came into the world. The Word became flesh to join His bride to Himself and through Himself to God. You see, in Adam, we were separated from God, which our love affair with sin clearly testified. Still, notwithstanding our rejection of Christ's love and all the things that made us unworthy of Christ's love, Jesus loved us even to the point of death on a cross. By it, he redeemed his bride from the penalty and power of our sins. He removed our condemnation. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He removed that, and in its place he also gave us a new captivation. We are no longer captivated by sin, but by Christ. Though not perfect yet, he loves us into loveliness again. Forgiven He makes us godly. Joined to Him, He nourishes and cherishes us. Known by Him, intimately, this second Adam will never let us go. He left His Father in order to hold fast to us. Say, well, Brian, we're still so sinful and so adulterous, and surely he'll let us go. (laughs) Oh, he will not. (laughs) As we are sinful and adulterous, though, surely we need to repent, right? Let us repent. But the facts are facts, and according to the gospel facts, though we are spiritually naked as naked could be before his eyes, yet because of Jesus, we can be both open about our sins, completely open about our sins, and nonetheless be as unashamed before God as a sinless bride could be. You know why? Because God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might be unashamed. Even the righteousness of God. (laughs) That's incredible. So, our text gives a notice of eternal grace. Is that how you have read Genesis 2, 24 and 25? It prophesies of a mystery that will everlastingly remedy the future, now present certainty of our fall. It casts the shadow of God's redeeming love and it's a shadow that the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus has now substantiated. He's the substance of it. This creation is going to give way. Do you know what it's going to give way to? A wedding ceremony. What Jesus has inaugurated will be consummated. There will be a day when our voices, our voices, are joined with those now in heaven. Let us rejoice and exult, and give him the glory. Revelation 19, verse 7, why? Because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. To some of us here, that's a standing invitation, so long as you live, to divorce your sin today and be joined forever by faith to Jesus. Far more vital than that you marry, or who you marry, or when you're going to get married and whatnot, is that you be reconciled to your Creator by entrusting your soul to Him as your Redeemer. He has bent more than a knee to offer you His eternal love. He's crushed His own Son. And raised him from the dead. Won't you be party to the marriage for which the world exists and you no know less? To us, beloved, it's a call, isn't it? It's a call to make that marriage the crowning moment atop all our lives. Creation exists to the praise of the glory of God's grace. In Jesus Christ. And it seems then that the whole Bible would have us follow suit. It wants our lives to be swept up in the grand love story of redemption. And dear ones, listen, it will only be to our joy to oblige that and to be the bride Jesus came into the world to hold fast. Let's pray together. Oh well, Lord, we thank you for your word, oh the dimensions and the depths, oh the love divine that we find in every verse. I pray that you would cause us to rejoice and exult and give you the glory as we look to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming into the world to redeem us for yourself. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we do. Amen.